Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to this week's Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here with John Mitchell, and it is time to get into 2020 preview season. We have no clue exactly what's going to be happening with the season as of yet, given the ongoing pandemic that is taking place all across the country. But despite that, we still want to preview some football for you, because even if this ultimately proves inconsequential in the long run, hey, you know, a good day talking about college football is is a good day, whether or not it means anything in the long run. Wouldn't you say, John? Absolutely. I'd rather be talking about this than anything else. Ain't that the truth? I mean... There's enough bad shit going on in the world right now. Let's let's enjoy something that can uplift us a little. So on that note, this week, everybody, we're going to be previewing small schools. We're going to be looking at the FCS in the broadest possible sense. We're going to be taking a look at the Ivy League race and letting you know why you should even give a damn about the Ivy League race. We're going to be talking about the FCS in a broader sense, the FCS playoffs. You know, and obviously, can anybody take down the the Goliath in the uh, at that level? And we're also going to be looking at historically black colleges and universities because the two preeminent conferences hold their own championships separate from the FCS. So we've got a lot to cover this week. Um, and the way we're going to be doing this is because I'm the guy who talks about small schools mostly. Uh, this is you know one of my areas of expertise, if you will, or as close to expert as you can get in college football, which means you often come off looking like a slavering idiot. But regardless of that, you know, I think these are important things to talk about. So I'm going to let John lead me this week. I think this is something where we cannot, you know, we can't get away from the broader discussions and, well, I'll be the one on the firing seat. So... I'm going to let you take it away, John. I think we're starting with the Ivy League, aren't we? That's correct, and I, I like it. I like being on the other side of this. You usually lead the discussions and whatnot, so this will be interesting. Like, full disclosure, I keep up with some of this um, somewhat, I guess, but Zach's a lot more passionate about smaller division football than I am, so he's going to have a lot more really good information. So, you know, starting with the Ivy League, Zach, and, you know, you talked about I guess the big overarching question is why should anyone listening to the podcast right now care at all about Ivy League football? You know, that's a great question. Obviously, you know, at this point as a 1AA conference that doesn't even play in the FCS playoffs, it seems like they're just kind of sitting there on on the margins. But you know, the history is there with the Ivy League. If you know anything about college football, you know that we owe this entire sport to schools like Yale and Princeton and Harvard. You know, of the 371 national ch- championship claims at what is now the FBS level, you know, over the long history of college football uh, since 1869, more than 20% of those national title claims belong to Ivy League schools. 
you know, Princeton, as of right now, still has more claimed national championships than teams like Alabama, USC, Ohio State, Oklahoma, all those titans of the sport. And yeah, they don't claim them now, but, you know, because this sport exists largely due to the influence of, of, of those Ivy League schools, especially guys like Yale's Walter Camp, who played an outsized role in codifying the rules that we know today, I think, you know, it's great to hearken back to that history. And the fact that we have the Ivy League there allows us to see football in a, you know, it allows us to see football from yesteryear today. The offenses obviously are different. The defenses are obviously different. You're not going to see a flying wedge. You're, you know, the forward pass is legal. But there's just something that harkens back to those traditions of the bulldog, of the crimson, of the tigers going against one another. That, you know, I was writing about it earlier this spring in my my series of irreverent looks back at college football history in the 19 or in the 19th century. And I think that's really why you want to pay attention to this because while it has no greater impact, honestly, football itself doesn't have any greater impact. Let me check my words there. Football obviously has an outsized impact on communities and the way our lives work. And understanding where it began and how it still functions today where it began can really inform what we're looking at today. That's a great answer to that question. So I appreciate the historical look and stuff and everything like that. So, you know, I think it's interesting, too, that, you know, the Ivy League's produced some really good teams in recent years, but we haven't seen them get an opportunity to play in the FCS playoffs because that's just, for whatever reason, I'm not sure maybe you you know even the specific reason, not something the league uh, allows its teams to do currently to, to play in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, like last year, what was it? Um, Dartmouth, and, Dartmouth and Yale, I think, tied for the Ivy League yep. crown, if that's correct. Uh, and, you know, it seemingly both had really good teams. They stacked up well nationally. Um, statistically uh, against other FCS opponents and whatnot, won some games outside their league against some decent opponents as well. Do you think that, you know, the Yale, the Dartmouths of the world, if given the opportunity down the line, could compete in the FCS playoffs? First of all, I don't think the Ivy League is ever going to waver on this stance. It, it, It basically comes down to the fact that the Ivy League sees itself as a world apart. And, you know, all of these teams within the conference, the eight teams within the Ivy League, have all collectively agreed to play 10-game schedules to restrict their recruiting, their scholarships, everything else, to a level that's almost more akin to Division Three than it is to, one, to FCS football, Division One FCS football. And so... You know, they have the 10-game schedule, and they basically said it's more important to play this loop with this historic loop than it is to mash into a larger conglomerate of FCS teams and play this postseason. 
Um, you know, obviously in the earliest parts of, you know, the earliest days of the sport, we can find looking at like Rose Bowl results. You saw teams like Penn, teams like Harvard went there. After the 1950s, though, when the Ivy League formed in 1954, as, and, and that's the other thing to remember, is this is a relatively recent league in, in terms of the history of conferences. For the longest time, the Ivy League was uh, as mythical as the national championship. It was something that was talked about among reporters as a way to frame, you know, sort of the original institutions around the sport, but it wasn't until 1954 that this becomes an actual conference. And when they did that, they really decided to de-emphasize the over-commercialized aspects of football to make sure that they were emphasizing academics as well. And so you're never... I would be shocked if the Ivy League ever played in the FCS postseason simply because it cuts into finals, it cuts into the beginning of the next semester, and the Ivy League definitely champions themselves as academic first. That said, you know, uh, Ivy League Executive Director Robin Harris herself said less than a year ago, back last August, before the 2019 season started, that she believes Ivy League teams could compete in the FCS postseason, could win multiple rounds. Didn't go so far as to say they would come out as the national champion, but, you know, I think you're absolutely right. You look at those teams from last year, Yale and Dartmouth finished tied atop the league with, uh, you know, 9-1 records. They were both 6 and. Six and one in conference play, and you know Yale ranked in the top five in the FCS last season in total offense, scoring offense, and they did it with a killer passing offense. Out of those numbers, you'd think that they could compete with maybe not a North Dakota State, but they could have at least gotten through the first couple rounds against a a Kennesaw State or a Wofford, Um, and likewise Dartmouth ranked second nationally in scoring defense. They only gave up 0.1 point per game more than North Dakota State. The the next closest team, I can't remember exactly who offhand, but they gave away about 15, 15 and a half points a game. So you can see Dartmouth gave away 12.3 points a game. They were incredible defensively. And at the same time, you look at Princeton, who finished third in the league, they were also a top 10 scoring defense in the FCS. So I think that Harris is probably right that if an Ivy League champion was allowed by the Ivy League to compete in the FCS playoffs, they could probably make a run. They could probably make it through a couple of rounds, make it to the quarterfinals. But, I, you know... Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get that opportunity based on how the Ivy League is structured. Yeah, I mean, it seems like they take student-athlete a lot more seriously. Um, and, you know, for the most part, these are kids who are going to be going pro in something other than sports. You don't see a ton of Ivy League players playing professional football. Obviously, it happens. Ryan Fitzpatrick is the first guy that comes to mind, played quarterback at Harvard. So, Harvard or Yale. It was Harvard, yeah. Okay, good. I had it right the first time. So, you know, 
I think that makes sense. That it, I think it would be fun to get to see these teams get the opportunity to play in the playoff, but I could totally un- understand not wanting um, athletics to come in the way of academics. When I mean, when you go to an Ivy League school, you're going there because of academics. Like you know, that's that's why you're there in the first place. So um, I guess moving on for the the final thing with the Ivy League, Zach, you talked about Yale, you talked about Dartmouth, you talked about Princeton. Uh, but, you know, Yale and Dartmouth tied for the title last year. Do you see maybe even another team outside of the big three having a shot at, at uh, making a run on Ivy League title this year? Because I think, I think obviously Yale is going to be pretty good. Dartmouth seems like they had a lot of turnover based on uh, the numbers, so they've got a lot of starters to replace. Princeton's got a lot coming back, so they should have a really good shot, I think. Was there anybody else in the conference you see that's got a shot at emerging into that top three? You know, I look at it, and I don't think this is going to be Harvard's year. Obviously, Crimson supporters would love to hear that. The days of Penn football being really relevant are probably gone. You know, once they missed out on the opportunity to have an exclusive TV contract in 1950, when the NCAA took over exclusive TV rights back then... Um, I think it pretty much killed what Penn could be. And Columbia and Brown, you know, probably not. So if any team was going to step up, it'd probably be Cornell. Uh, You know, the Big Red do, uh, you know, they do have a decent team coming back, a fairly veteran team. They have 15 starters returning, 8 on offense, 7 on defense, and they have... 60 upperclassmen on their roster, you know, out of any of the Ivy League schools, they have the largest proportion of their roster made up of upperclassmen, 71.4% of the players on their team. Five out of every seven are either juniors or seniors. So if any team has a chance in terms of that veteran presence and everything to make that move, it's probably Cornell. At the same time, Cornell finished 3-7 and seven last year. Um, they also did lose 29 seniors, which was uh, tied for the largest number lost by any school. So honestly, I think this probably comes down to a big three again. And honestly, with how many players Dartmouth lost, they only have seven out of their, their starting 22 returning this year. They lost two-thirds of their starting roster on both sides of the ball. So I think Dartmouth probably takes a backslide a bit, and this becomes the exact same thing we saw throughout the 1870s, the 1880s, the 1890s. It's Princeton versus Yale. And I honestly like Princeton this year. You know, they were just a game behind both Yale and Dartmouth last year. They finished the season 8-2, and two. They have 58 returning upperclassmen, 67% of that total roster, and they have, I think it's 15 total returning, or 14 total returning starters, 6 on offense, 8 on defense. So, they have to adjust to a new starting quarterback. But if Princeton can do that and get up to speed quickly, I think they have a real shot of pushing Yale for the title. But until further notice, it's probably Yale's to lose. Yeah, I, I like Princeton, too, just based on the little bit that I've looked into it. So um, I, I like what you mentioned about Cornell, too, though, because if you look at their schedule from last year, 
three of their losses came by a combined eight points, and they went to Dartmouth and beat Dartmouth 20-17 to in the season finale last year, which ultimately cost Dartmouth an outright conference championship. Yep. So they were able to play that spoiler. Like you said, they bring back a lot of uh, talent from last season. I don't think either that they're going to challenge to actually win it, but it wouldn't surprise me if they slotted in third behind yeah. Princeton and Yale. Yeah, I think that's really possible for the team. You know, if I was to rank those teams right now, I'd probably say Princeton and Yale are 1A and 1B. Either, you know, it depends on injuries who ends up coming out on top and who, you know, has the most complete roster at the end of the season. I'd put Cornell third. I'd probably put Harvard fourth. I think Dartmouth's going to slide down to fifth. And then... It's any, you know, I'd probably say Columbia probably slots in just ahead of Penn and Brown brings up the seller. That's fair. Yeah. So, you know, on that note, that's where I, that's where I think the Ivy League's going to be this year. I, you know, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think we're in agreement that this is probably a two horse race at the very top, but you get just below those top two. And I think it does get interesting with a team like Cornell that doesn't have quite the same pedigree of these other teams that we're talking about. So it'd be a, be a fun story if they were able to make a serious run at the Ivy league crown. So I know Andy Dwyer would love it on the office. So <laughs> very true. Well, on that note, everybody let's take a quick, break grab yourself something to drink use the restroom we'll be right back after this quick break to talk about the fcs race as a whole stay tuned welcome back from the break to the saturday blitz podcast everybody we're talking all things football championship subdivision this week as we kick off our 2020 previews We just finished talking about the Ivy League race, and now it's time to dive into the FCS. So, where would you like to start with this FCS race, John? I mean, I think the biggest question every year, it seems like, in the when you try to talk about the FCS, you try to handicap the races and all that, is can anyone dethrone North Dakota State? They've just been obviously head and shoulders better than everybody the last decade. At this point, they've won eight of the last nine FCS titles. They're churning out a ton of talent every single year. Um, They've got one of the best quarterbacks, not just in the FCS, but the entire country, in Trey Lance, who, you know, didn't throw an interception at all last year as a first-year starter. He's a redshirt sophomore this year, so he's draft eligible after this year, and um Interestingly enough, most mock drafts that I've seen have him slotted in as the number three quarterback this year behind Trevor Lawrence at Clemson and Justin Fields at Ohio State. So that's obviously high praise. We've seen North Dakota State turn out several talented quarterbacks in the past. Obviously, Carson Wentz um, is the you know Eagles starter right now. Um, but you know Trey Lance is arguably the most talented quarterback to ever come through. North Dakota State. So it's hard for me personally, Zach, particularly with Lance back for this season, to see anyone overtaking the Bison this year. But do you see anyone who can seriously threaten their autonomy on top of the FCS world? Atop the FCS world, it's very hard to pick, you know, anybody else that has a real chance. And I think, 
you know, the biggest challengers might be in their own division. The Missouri Valley Conference is really deep. You know, you have basically three three of five teams every year that are really good. And I think the one that can step up biggest this year is probably Northern Iowa. They've got 16 starters back. They've got an offensive line that would make Wisconsin fans salivate. Each one of these guys averages six foot six and three hundred twenty eight pounds along their line. That's an NFL offensive line right there. So to see that at an FCS school like Northern Iowa, I think that gives them the best chance to push back against North Dakota State. I also think their Dakota marker rival, South Dakota State, has has a shot given that they have eight straight playoff appearances. They also return a really strong roster from last season. That said, I probably would not bet the field this year. I really would not. You know, I until they are until proved otherwise, North Dakota State is just they're like. One A asterisk, one double A asterisk. You know they could be a one A team if they felt like transitioning upward. And I think just like I think they would have more of a history like a Boise State that transitioned up, or even Marshall in their earliest years where they just dominated the MAC. I think North Dakota State could go and dominate the MAC right now if they were invited in. I think they could dominate Conference USA right now if they were invited in. And so, I I, I really do not see any team stopping them from getting a ninth title in, in 10 years. And I know that, you know, that kind of blows our entire predictions out of the water right away to say that, but... You know, I'd say their biggest challengers are probably Northern Iowa and South Dakota State in their own division. Yeah, I mean, I think a better question would be which group of five league would North Dakota State not win this season? I think that's how good they're, you know, projected to be at least. I think losing Jabril Cox, who grad transferred to LSU, is their star linebacker last year. I think that's a tough loss for them, and in particular in the middle of that defense, but... You know, they've got a, a lot of talent that can replace that. They're going to score a lot of points, um, and I don't see their defense taking that big of a step back or anything either to to really make it. So, you know, like you said, this is, to me, it's like if you took a team like Kansas State and just made them play FCS football for a year. Yeah. And I guess I use them as the example because, obviously, Chris Kleinman's at Kansas State now. But, like, that's how it feels to me. It just feels like it's it's almost unfair. This is one of the best dynasties in the history of the sport or, or I mean really is probably the best dynasty in the history of the sport unless you go back to the very beginnings when you were talking about the run in the Ivy League at the very um, birth of college football so it's one of the best dynasties in all sports so I you know it's obviously a cop-out to pick North Dakota State to win the conference but it's also kind of stupid at this point to suggest that anybody could overtake them you know it'd be a fun story if someone was able to beat them this year but it's really hard to to say that that's going to happen I think yeah you know and I think part of that as well is you look at a team like James Madison that has been in the championship game three of the past four years 
they lose a lot of talent. You know, Chris Signetti loses 13 of his 22 starters from 2019. So you just think about that. And North Dakota State is one of those teams that we talk about in the same way that we talk about FBS powerhouses. They don't rebuild. They just reload, right. in, you know. And that's, to go from, to to be able to just transition straight to a Trey Lancet quarterback that says it all right there, you know, to be able to lose somebody like a Jabril Cox and keep moving forward, especially against the competition that they play. You know, I think the big question here is not can anyone catch North Dakota State this season, but can anybody even knock them off once? They're coming off their 16-0 and record last season. They're running a what is it, like 37-game winning streak right now? I mean, this is Oklahoma under Bud Wilkinson territory. And the thing is, is this is a school that's doing it not just, you know, not just retooling in their roster, but they flipped over three coaches. You think this all started not with Chris Kleiman, but with Craig Bull, who's now at Wyoming. And, you know, like... This is sustained success. Like, in that regard, it reminds me a lot of Miami in the 1980s, how you were able to go from Schnellenberger to Jimmy Johnson to Dennis Erickson like that and just keep the ball rolling. That's what North Dakota State is right now to me. That's a great comparison, I think. Definitely with... That's probably been the most impressive thing they've been able to do is flip over coaches. Um and continue dominating like they have. So, um, but yeah, I mean, they're, I think clearly the runaway favorite in the league this or in the FCS, obviously this year. So now you mentioned obviously the, um, the Missouri Valley's probably got the most top end talent in the FCS this year. Uh, do you see any other conferences that could be on that level where they'll have multiple teams that'll compete for maybe even a Final Four in the FCS playoff? You know, the one that obviously pops out to me immediately is the Big Sky. And full disclosure, I spent a year at Portland State covering the Big Sky Conference for the campus newspaper six, seven years ago, eight years ago at this point, back when... Uh, it was uh, Nigel Burton coaching the team. So, you know, I'm not entirely unbiased there, but I think you just look at the depth in that conference. It rivals the Missouri Valley in terms of how deep it is with Weber State. I think both Montana schools are incredible. You know, both of Montana was in the quarterfinals last year. Montana State was in the semifinals. Weber State was in the semifinals. And then you have schools like Eastern Washington that are still right there in the hunt and have won national championships in the past decade. Um, even a team like Sacramento State looks like they have the chance to elevate up this year. So I think, you know, it they're they're probably the next closest in terms of depth. You can also look at a league like the Colonial Athletic Association where James Madison plays. You know, I think Villanova and New Hampshire have a real good chance this year to make a deep run in the playoff. Um, 
but at the same time, you know, and then they have other, you know, they have depth in teams like Albany and Towson, but beyond that, you know, you have a couple of good leagues that I think don't quite stand up at that same level. The Southland is probably the next best out of those three. Uh, Central Arkansas has a really talented team coming back this year. Sam Houston State and Nichols are both always decent threats. Uh, you also look at the Southern Furman and the Citadel, and you know I mentioned Wofford earlier. I use them as my uh, my team that an, an Ivy League school could possibly get through. But at the same time, that'd be a hell of a fight. So I think those are probably the best among the rest. And I think the Big Sky is, in terms of depth, is right there with the Missouri Valley in terms of teams that have a sustained track record of getting to the semifinals. And I think, you know, the Colonial, though they probably will have just as many teams ranked in the preseason top 25, uh, the FCS rankings, I, I think they'll probably all be ranked a bit lower than where you see everything shake out among the big sky. So that's really the one I think is probably the best. You know, some, another fascinating stat about North Dakota State, I meant to mention this a second ago, they've beaten the last six FBS opponents they've played, which, you know, I wonder who they play next, their next FBS opponent this year, Zach. Who would that Who would that be in the season opener? Oh, that stat is hanging heavy on my <laughs> head right now. And, you know, I've said it earlier in the, you know, in a previous podcast, but honestly, I might be as scared, if not more scared, for North Dakota State this year as an Oregon fan than I am of Ohio State. That's weird to say, but... The thing is, you lose to an Ohio State, it's not going to do nearly as much damage to you as it will against a North Dakota State. Right. And I think both teams could come into Watson and crush Oregon. I really do. Yeah, I mean, Ohio. you lose to Ohio State, you're still in the thick of the playoff race. You, even as good as everyone knows North Dakota State is, you can't lose to an FCS program and then bounce back and make a playoff run. So I can understand uh, being more afraid of that season opener just because of how much potential damage it could do to the entire season for the Ducks. So yeah. I had to get that in there. I thought that was, I thought that was fun. So. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because that, that Bison team is, it's scary. Yeah. It'd be a really good showcase for Trey Lance too, getting the, you know, national showcase in Eugene to really show what he can do. I think people are really, you know, he's obviously becoming a household name, obviously, but I think people are really going to get to see how good he really is in that game. So, Well, especially against an Oregon team whose defense has been talked up so much and that really made vast improvement last year on that side of the ball. You know, that's, that's probably the toughest test he's yet faced in college. Oh, and, yeah. I mean, he pulls that off. I don't know that he's going to be a top three quarterback, but he might end up being the second or first quarterback that's selected in the draft next year if he pulls that off and then runs the table, you know, to finish 32-0 and during his career with North Dakota State. Yeah, legendary stuff for sure. So, so Zach, I, the big question, I, obviously I think you're going with North Dakota State to win the national championship at yeah. that level, but what other three teams do you see uh, making the semifinals in the FCS playoffs? 
You know, I, I, I talked about Northern Iowa earlier, and I think they do have a real chance to make that run with so much returning talent. I think, and then, you know, I also talked about the Big Sky, and I think two teams make it again this year from that conference. I think Weber State makes it back through. And I think rather than Montana State this year, it's Montana that does it. I think the Grizzlies, rather than the Bobcats, make it through to that Final Four. And I I think the best guess is we probably see a North Dakota State-Weaver State championship game there in Frisco. Okay. I agree with three of your four. I like North Dakota State, Weaver State, Northern Iowa. But instead of Montana, I actually like Villanova mm. this year. To make the to make the semifinals, I'm really high on Daniel Smith. Um, you know the quarterback for Villanova. He had 48 touchdowns last year between uh, throwing and rushing. I think they got a lot of weapons on offense, and they've got an experienced defense this year as well. So I, I really like um, the Wildcats to make a, a serious run. I don't think they'll you know topple North Dakota State. But it wouldn't surprise me if they were standing opposite the Bison in the national title game this year. I think that's a fair pick, especially since, as I mentioned earlier, I think James Madison is due for a little bit of a backslide there in the Colonial. So I could totally see Villanova coming through and making a run. Um, if you had me pick eight, I probably would have thrown him in there. So, you know, luck of the way games play out. As, right. as we all know as college football fans. Shout out Jacksonville State, too. They weren't as good last year. Uh, and speaking of biases, I went to school there for a while myself. So hoping the Gamecocks get back up and going. Derek Cooper's one of the better quarterbacks at that level, so hopefully he can lead them back after a pretty disappointing season last year. So hopefully my Gamecocks get back up there. You know, I really think they could bounce back and take the Ohio Valley from Austin P this year. I think that's a real possibility. So keep those fingers crossed, John. And, you know, maybe Portland State makes a, an out-of-nowhere run as well. But I'm less certain of that happening than I am of the possibility of Jacksonville State having a chance. So, better luck for you than me, probably. All right, everybody. Now that we've talked about the FCS, we're going to take our last quick break here before we break into historically black colleges and universities. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back for our last segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We're talking all things FCS this week as we open up our 2020 preview schedule. We've been talking about the FCS playoffs and who might emerge victorious. And, you know, obviously whether anybody can take down the Bison of North Dakota State. Before that, we talked about the Ivy League, which leaves last but certainly not least historically black colleges and universities for us to talk about. You know, for the longest time, as I mentioned in a recent Sunday Morning Quarterback article, uh, black colleges were completely left out entirely of chances to play for a national championship at basically any level. So the fact that we have the opportunity to talk about a specific black national championship this year on the field is it's always a treat to get to see that so first of all i'm going to throw a question to you first john before you dive into questions with me and it's uh -huh. just what is what does hbcu football mean to you as somebody who follows the sport 
you know, obviously passionately, but follows it more at the top level than at the FCS level. You know, honestly, it it took a, a good little while before I really paid much attention to HBCU football. Uh, when I lived, when I was going to the University of Alabama, I lived in Tuscaloosa. There is an HBCU in Tuscaloosa called Stillman College. Uh, they don't play at, you know, the FCS level or anything like that. They do have a football program. They have a basketball program and everything like that. And I, you know, became friends with several guys who went to school over there. And they really opened my eyes to, you know, what HBCUs mean to them and, um, you know, what, for instance, like they, like I said, Stillman doesn't play at the level that, you know, North Carolina A&T and those guys play at, but... You know, what a black college national championship meant to them, for instance. And, you know, obviously the one of the main things you hear about when you talk about HBCUs, you'd be remiss without talking about the Battle of the Bands that always take place at these halftime shows. That blows anything you see at the FBS level completely out of the water. It's not even like they're it's not even like they're competing in the same events, to be honest, when you see it. I saw a a Stillman show live one time. It was just unbelievable how impressive um, that was. And I'm not even huge into bands and music when it comes to that kind of thing. Uh, I can't play an instrument to save my life or anything like that. But definitely enjoyed that and was just kind of blown away about how good um, those performances were. So, you know, the Celebration Bowl for the last several years has been one of my favorite games to watch, you know, yeah. it really kicks off bowl season. Um, it's always a really competitive game too. You've got, you know, the champion from the MEAC, the champion from the SWAC playing against each other in recent years. It's been tough for anybody to get over the hump of North Carolina A&T who was similarly dominating at that level. Like North Dakota state um, has been dominating, not, you know, obviously at the same level or anything. So that's really kind of what, it means to me, Zach, do you have any other thoughts on that yourself? I'm just glad you brought up the bands because I think, you know, while these schools are at Division One FCS HBCU level, those bands are 1A, you know. they. You talk about FBS bands, those are Division Two bands compared to what you get out of, you know, out of any historically black college or university. Every one of the, the band means more there, you know. Dotting an I, that's child's play compared to what these guys do on the field. Yeah, you go to an HBCU game and you get up at halftime, people look at you. Oh, when yeah. You go to a, an FBS college game, you get up at halftime to go to the restroom, visit the snack bar, or whatever. You do that during the football game at an HBCU game. You don't get up and go anywhere during the halftime show. No. People look at you weird if you don't get up at an FBS game and wander around during halftime. They look at you weird if you do at an HBCU game. Absolutely. So, you know, I guess moving forward to Zach, we talked about the Celebration Bowl and all that. And something you had talked to me about recently was the potential that the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference is on life support with North Carolina A&T moving on to the Big South next year, Florida A&M and Bethune-Cookman jumping to the SWAC. 
So what's going to happen to that conference now that there's just this mass exodus of teams? You know, they have six football playing members for 2021. It could be as many as seven. But the thing is, is you have a seriously diminished league there, especially when you consider that three years ago, Hampton left for the Big South. Savannah State decided to transition back down to Division Two and, and back to the Southern Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. And this is a team that, or this is a conference that's bleeding. And it really makes you wonder, sadly, what the future of the Celebration Bowl is going to be. Because as you mentioned, this is... This is a bowl that matches the Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference champion against the Southwestern Athletic Conference champion. The two FCS conferences that have been, that are historically black conferences that contain historically black colleges and universities. It obviously doesn't contain all of them because if you think about it, a team like Tennessee State, which is right up there, you know, since 1920 as the most it, right there is the most storied HBCU in college football. They don't have a chance to play for this because they're in the Big South right now. So you see teams like NCA&T going to the Big South. You already saw Hampton go there. And it makes you wonder whether they're going to shift who's affiliating with the Celebration Bowl in the future. Is this going to be the Southwestern Athletic Conference champion against the Big South champion? In, in which case, as we talked about earlier, you know, does a North Carolina A&T that transitioned over perhaps have a chance at the FCS playoffs? Does that go away again for them? It's, a, it, it's an interesting question. And, you know, I think, I think unless the MEAC gets at least three more teams to transition upward from Division Two, which is an absolutely ridiculous ask of any historically black college and university, given the way that they've historically been supported at a separate and anything but equal level. And, you know, I, I think it's a huge ask. I think the MEAC might be gone in the next, within the next five years. I'd be shocked if they continue to exist. They just bled three of their most famous teams. You know, North Carolina A&T, as you mentioned, has been dominant. Florida A&M is historically one of the powerhouses of black college football, you know, and they're bringing along their Sunshine State rival, Bethune-Cookman, to the SWAC. So, it could get really ugly really quickly for that conference. And, you know, I, it's on life support, and I think that plug might ultimately be pulled in the next five years, which is really sad for black college football in the way, you know, what does this actually do for that championship that, you know, these two conferences explicitly opted out of having their champion play in the FCS playoffs so that they could hold a black national championship. And I, I think the affiliation really could change in the near future. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the Celebration Bowl was meant a lot. As we talked about last year, North Carolina A&T's had good enough teams to potentially compete for the FCS championship. Maybe not up to North Dakota State's level, but we've seen them beat really quality teams out of conference. I remember they played 
season opener against Jacksonville State a few years back when the Gamecocks were still really at the peak of their run of dominance in the OVC. And they beat Jacksonville State relatively soundly in that game. I remember watching it just being kind of blown away by how good the Aggies were. So, you know, that's how much the Celebration Bowl and how much being named the Black College National Champion means to these HBCU schools. So I imagine that we'll still have that game in some capacity, but it's obviously going to be drastically different in the coming seasons. Yeah, I wonder if it becomes something like the old classics that they used to play. Like, I think specifically about Florida A&M's Orange Blossom Classic that used to run for, you know, it ran for 30, 40 years, I think, from the 40s until about 75, 78. So, you know, that was a game that oftentimes had a stake in the national championship, but it was always Florida A&M playing in it. And it was basically an invitational. And in those years where they were undefeated, they could basically invite whatever other undefeated HBCU they could and, and play for a title. I really see this, you know, this is going two ways. First of all, I think the Southwestern Athletic Conference becomes the preeminent black conference at this point. Because you have Southern, you have Grambling, you have Florida A&M, you have Bethune-Cookman, you have a, a load of talent all around. And so I think that becomes preeminent, and then I think it becomes an invitation. You know, if a team like Tennessee State or North Carolina A&T or a Hampton finishes high in the, you know, the Big South, they, they'll select one of them. And I think you see them play. And I think it'll be interesting because you'll see, will these teams opt out of the FCS playoff to go play in the Celebration Bowl? Uh, that's really what's going to be interesting moving forward is seeing whether or not teams decide one or the other is more important for them. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, you know, I guess because we have to tie in everything recently to COVID-19 and all that, so far of... Division One college football, what's been most affected by the coronavirus so far, seems to be um, HBCU schedules. We've already seen several um, games get outright canceled for this season. Um, so do we, you know, Zach, do you see further cancellations? And what kind of impact do you think this has? What kind of seasons are we looking at for HBCU colleges this year? Because, I mean, obviously I think everybody's eventually going to be affected by this and we're not going to have a normal season across the board. We've talked about that many times on here. But, you know, obviously the, the smaller schools are going to be more deeply affected. So what do you see the season really looking like this year? A lot of attrition. I really do. I think it... it and, and like you said, it's smaller schools that are going to be impacted by this most. You know, a, a school like Alabama, Ohio State, Texas, you know, these these really large athletic departments just awash in money. They can afford to test their players regularly. They can afford some bit of attrition. They can afford to take every possible measure to prevent things. You think about a school like Grambling a few years ago where their players had to sit out and forfeit a game just to get needed 
renovations to dilapidated facilities. And I, I think the problem is, is you just don't, at, at smaller levels, you just don't have the same amount of resources to, you know, put on the illusion that everything is normal. And I think we're going to, you know, we've obviously seen games canceled through in the first couple weeks of September. Huge games as well. You know, Southern has lost two games already. Tennessee State has lost two games already. Florida State's lost one. Jackson State has lost a couple. And so, you know, on that note, you're already seeing diminished schedules. What's that going to do to conference championships? You know, if and when we start losing conference games, because all of what we've seen right now are 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 intersectional games that have been canceled. You haven't seen any conference games canceled yet in the MEAC and the SWAC and the Big South and any of these conferences that have HBCU teams. I think by August we're going to see more of those games canceled, however. And I think we're going to see truncated seasons out of these teams. I think some of them, like 1918, might opt not to play at all. And I hate to say that. I obviously do. But I hate more to think about underpaid players dying because they're sent back onto the field without the necessary precautions that their schools just can't afford. And so I think we're going to see further cancellations. I, I think we're going to see really unbalanced schedules for teams that get to play. And I think it's, there's, I hate to do it, we're, but we're probably going to see an asterisk on this season, no matter what happens. And we're going to see it at every level, but I think the HBCU level is just going to get impacted that much more because of the money that's there. Yeah, I mean, I agree completely. I, I think this is just the the beginning of of what we're going to see. You know, we started seeing it a, a month or so back when it was different sports cutting, you know, seasons or programs all together. And eventually it's going to lead to football. And, I mean, we're starting to see that now. So, you know, I guess that, you know, obviously it's it's hard to be optimistic in today's world that we'll even see a bowl schedule this year. Uh, but, you know, assuming we get a full bowl schedule, what do you think the celebration bowl looks like this year? Who's Which two teams are in there representing the MEAC and the SWAC? You know, we've talked about North Carolina A&T, but technically Florida A&M won the MEAC last year. They won it outright with a 7-1 conference record. They went 9-2, and but... They had a postseason ban from the NCAA, which is why the Aggies got to play in the Rattlers' spot. I think this is the year that Florida A&M overtakes North Carolina A&T and gets that spot for the first time in the Celebration Bowl. And I think on the other side of the bowl, you know, Alcorn State has been that team the past couple of years, but I think they're going to struggle. They've only got 10 of their 22 starters back from their East Division champs. And I think Alabama A&M and Alabama State both have a really great chance to push Alcorn State for the East Division this year. I think in the West, Southern has won the division the past two seasons. They return a hell of a lot of talent, and I'd be shocked if they didn't, you know, return to the SWAC championship game. 
And honestly, I think Southern's probably going to take down Alabama A&M in that game. So you have a celebration bowl that matches Florida A&M and Southern, two programs that have a long history with one another. As you mentioned, two absolutely incredible marching bands. Um, And they're historically two of the most dominant HBCU programs. And starting in 2021, they're going to be conference opponents now, both in the SWAC. So I think, you know, this is the last chance they get to meet each other in a celebration bowl setting. And I think this is the year for Florida A&M to restore that legacy of, of Jake Gaither and take on another national championship for themselves. Interesting. I, you know, I'm still, I'm going with North Carolina A&T. It's hard not to until further notice, right? Yeah, it's kind of, you know, you have a great point about the fact that Florida A&M technically won the conference last year. I think it's definitely a two-horse race yeah. in the MEAC between those two schools. Yeah. Uh, but give me A&T. I, I, I think they're probably still a little bit more talented overall. They've probably got the best running back at the FCS level in Jamie Martin. Yeah. Um, so they'll be able to, you know, obviously ride him all season long. If he can stay healthy, I think it's going to be tough. Um, in the SWAC, actually, I'm going with a little bit of a dark horse. And maybe this is stupid. Uh, but I like Prairie View A&M to come out. Um, of the SWAC and play in the Celebration Bowl this year. They've got 17 returning starters. They finished tied for second in the Western Division last year. Uh, I just really like their balance. You know, They've got to replace Jalen Morton at quarterback, and that's going to be tough. Um, But, you know, Trazon Conley played a good bit last year at quarterback for them as well. So I think he's going to be a good player. But I, I like the fact that they've got a lot of returning production. I just kind of wanted to be contrarian and and go with a, a dark horse team. And I think Prairie View A&M's got a, got a shot to really surprise this year. Oh, I think the Panthers have a really good shot. You know, last year, their schedule was deceptive for sure. You know, their three losses within the SWAC were by a combined 13 points. You know, a couple of plays in each of those games, and they t- overtake Southern and they finish with a 9-2 and record, and they look like a great addition to the Celebration Bowl. So I'm with you. You know, I think they obviously have more returning talent than Southern does. You have a, you know, I think, I, I think if any team is going to topple Southern, it's going to be within their own division. So I think Prairie View is probably the best team that has that shot to do it. I love that pick. Um, for being contrarian or whatever it was. But I think that's a... If any team's going to do it other than Southern out of that that conference, it's probably Prairie View A&M. I love that pick, John. Nice. Yeah, I I still like A&T to end up winning the Celebration Bowl, but I think Prairie View's got a really good shot at making a run and, and getting there, so... You know, I'd love to see a different celebration bowl, so I like you on the Florida A&M and Southern for the historical aspect. Plus, you know, we've seen A&T and Alcorn State, it feels like, at least the last two seasons, if not yeah. three, I can't remember, but definitely the last two seasons. Yeah. So it'd be fun to see a couple different teams, especially when this could be the last year that the celebration bowl looks as it currently does. And there's definitely going to be some major changes coming in 2021 and beyond. Yeah, there really will be. Um, 
just because of the way these conferences are realigning. So let's enjoy it while it lasts, right? And, you know, whatever it looks like moving forward, don't turn your eyes away from black college football. There is some exciting things going on there. And, you know, historically, there's a lot of talent there, too. Well, on that note, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in for the first of our previews of the 2020 college football season. Next week, we'll be coming with you, or next week, we'll be coming at you with a look at the group of five races, looking at each of those five conferences and who has the best shot of claiming that Access Bowl bid into the New Year's Six. Until then, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back with you next Wednesday, as we are every Wednesday. And you can always hit us up on Twitter at ZBagalki and at JLMitchell93. Thanks again. Have a wonderful week.